0: From Brazil to South Korea, from Justin Bieber to Bukayo Saka, Pentecostal Christianity is sweeping the globe. For a moment or two, just pray in tongues. Strike and strike and strike until you have victory for every enemy that is aligned against you. By 2050, one in 10 of us is predicted to be part of a movement that promises health, wealth, and prosperity, and not just in heaven, but here and now.
1: The faith also says that there's nothing wrong with being rich and successful. It says, no, it's fine. In many ways, it's a reward for your good faith.
0: In America, Pentecostals were the bedrock of Trump support, with more than half of them believing he'd been anointed by God, even though he isn't necessarily known for his Christian morality. It's someone who's ready to roll their sleeves up and get dirty
1: on their behalf. They, they might want their Pentecostal preacher, perhaps, to, to live by the values that he's preaching. But, but the leader of the free world, maybe it's better if he's unconstrained by them.
0: What is Pentecostalism, and why is it becoming one of the fastest-growing religions? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how Pentecostalism is taking over the world. Over the last few years, journalist and foreign correspondent Elle Hardy has been following the global Pentecostal movement around the world. In Nigeria, just outside Lagos, a city of 20 million people, she found a sort of highway to heaven, a redemption road. All along the Lagos Ibadan Expressway, Nigeria's busiest road, Pentecostal megachurches now line the street. The redeemed Christian Church of God was the first. The megachurch opened its campground at the site 40 years ago. It's now the size of a city and a centre of gravity for the Christian world in Africa. The large campground is three kilometres by three
1: kilometres, so that could fit six Vatican's inside of it. Generally, there'll be at least 100,000 people there at a time. I was there during the pandemic, so I wasn't able to see it in full flight. It looks like a, almost like an airport hangar. It's a really large, high, corrugated iron ceiling roof. It's outdoors. It's very almost ramshackle pews. And it's everything that traditional Christianity is not. It's austere. It's improvised. It's bubbling with the miraculous. It's a hopeful, exciting place that is very set apart from the rest of Lagos. People think of Lagos as, as very corrupt and a hard grind. And, and this is their place to be hopeful and place to be full of miracles and full of joy. Redemption City, as this particular church ground is called, you know, they have a university, a hospital. In many parts, the streets are paved, unlike most other parts of the city. It has more functioning ATMs than
0: most of Lagos combined. I mean, that's remarkable. And churches at that sort of scale, it's not just Nigeria, is it? They are now popping up all over the world. Absolutely. So
1: Brazil is now believed to be the most Pentecostal nation on earth. Probably this year it's happened. They were the most Catholic nation. Within the next 10 years, there'll be more Pentecostals than Catholics in Brazil, which is pretty crazy considering there were just a you know few percent of Brazilians were Pentecostal in 1980. And that's the same story for the rest of the world. So in 1980, about uh, 6% of the world's Christians were Pentecostal. Now it's something like twenty-five to thirty percent. So so within forty years that that's a remarkable change. I'm not sure we've ever seen anything quite like that.
0: And yet there'll be a lot of people listening to this who will currently be wondering, what is Pentecostalism? Tell us a bit about it. I mean, what are the core beliefs and how is it different to other denominations, other parts of Christianity?
1: Pentecostal Christianity is a branch of evangelical Christianity. So it says that people first need to accept their Lord and Saviour and be born again, as with traditional evangelicals. But Pentecostals will say that you then need to be born again into the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. So that is the Holy Spirit coming inside of you and blessing you with a biblical prophecy of nine gifts of the Spirit. So that's miracles, healing, speaking in tongues, and so on. When you get discouraged, all you got to do is
0: say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Jesus. <laughs>
1: It's a very direct experience with God. It's the ability to participate in the miraculous that that gets a lot of people on board. Health and wealth are probably the two biggest drivers. Prosperity gospel is huge in Pentecostal faith and there is actually some evidence that it has a very good effect on people's lives.
0: I mean, the prosperity part is really interesting because it's not what you normally associate with religion. I know you've described it as a sort of capitalist way of doing church. What exactly does that mean? Pentecostals have always been very
1: good at embracing the here and now.
0: The goal is to occupy till he comes, Yeah,
1: not be preoccupied with when you go. Particularly modern Pentecostalism is about having a good life now as well as in the ever after. And that's something that's really important to people. The faith also says that there's nothing wrong with being rich and successful. That's why we see so many premier league players so many musicians it says no it's fine in many ways it's a reward for your good faith i kind of want
0: to know how this manifests itself i mean if you're in one of those giant churches at a service this might be some of the stuff that's being preached you know what does that feel like what is a pentecostal service like it's not what you would think it's like so
1: for example i was recently at a hillsong service in london
0: the hillsong church was founded in australia in the 1980s and has since expanded to 30 countries on six continents. It has 150,000 members, and until earlier this year, Justin Bieber was one of them.
1: You walk in, the audience is very young. Hillsong in London says that 50% of their audience is under 25. I'd say it's more like 80 or 90% from the times that I've been there. It's very diverse, very multicultural. You have people from all sorts of of different backgrounds, very aspirational, upwardly mobile, very well-dressed, and they want to feel good about their faith.
0: My environment may not be conducive to what I want to see. But my seed has the power to change my life in this environment.
1: It can be another thing in your busy life. You can play for Arsenal on Saturday and go to church on Sunday. It's about feeling very uplifted and giving people what they want and the, the tools that they need to navigate modern life. So you get the the music's wonderful, you know, just as a digression. Rock and roll is basically secular Pentecostalism. It came out of them. Pentecostal churches or the early rock and roll from Sister Rosetta Tharp through to Elvis Presley were all raised Pentecostal. When you think of the the Elvis style or the Jerry Lee Lewis of you know frenetic stage energy and whooping and stomping that all came from the Pentecostal churches and so that presence has always been there.
0: It's
1: always been again that direct experience with God. A church like Hillsong, which has really pioneered this around the world, but many others. You'll be sitting down with this great young multicultural audience around you and someone will skip on stage and Nike trainers and start clapping and maybe doing hip hop, break dancing. Everyone will know the songs. There'll be a spectacular light show. The production values are, are really credible. I'm not a person of faith myself and I've been to hundreds of these church services over the last few years and they're good.
0: And how did all of this begin? I mean, where does Pentecostalism come from? So it
1: comes from a lot of the strains of of 19th century America. So, you know, frontier culture, rugged individualism, uh, that very decentralized, independent, no-state interference with church. The first person who was really starting to practice this was a man called Charles Fox Parham. He was a renegade Methodist preacher who could speak 250 words a minute. He was oh, in Kansas.
0: That's a lot to keep up with.
1: It is, it is. But it's also very exciting and, you know, you can really see how people can get on board with it. It's almost like an auctioneer kind of bidding up your route to heaven or, you know, the contest for your soul. And, and it's very exciting. But he was really, really big on things like healing and his family had a lot of sickness so he opened a healing home and he also had a prayer group and they were trying really hard to bring this very ancient idea that had sort of died out in around the 3rd century and, and was really only being practised in a few monasteries and,
0: and sort of a few very hushed
1: places. What was the idea? Speaking in tongues, having the Holy Spirit come into you.
0: This is something, it's a phrase we often hear, but you know, what exactly does that mean? It means
1: that you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Originally, it was so that the disciples of Jesus after he was crucified, could go out into foreign lands and be gifted with their languages to go and convert all of these new people. These days, with the modern understanding that we have, you know a lot of people found out in the extremely hard way that you know when they set sail thinking that they'd been filled with Chinese or Swedish and then arrived in somewhere like China and couldn't speak the language and many of the early missionaries died of dysentery and other horrible diseases. Now people will say that it's sort of their direct personal conversation with God. But Charles Fox Parham really brought into his congregation that belief. And once people started falling under the spirit and speaking in these tongues, words started spreading and he sort of took a almost travelling roadshow around America. He had a disciple, a young man called William J. Seymour, who was the son of freed slaves from Louisiana. And he'd been on his own uh, sort of quest around America working, escaping the South, which was getting quite brutal for freed black people. And he wound up becoming a student of Charles Fox Parham. He couldn't be in the classroom at the time because of segregation laws, so he had to learn from outside in the hallway. But he took on these beliefs and went up to a black church in Los Angeles in 1906 and had a large congregation and they prayed and fasted for days on end and then started falling under the spirit themselves. Then two very big things happened – Firstly, there was a San Francisco earthquake uh, just days after this event happened. Many people thought that was a sign of the end times and they needed to start converting as well. And there was also just an incredible burgeoning media sphere happening in in Los Angeles. This was the end of the frontier. This was a migrant city. This was people coming from poor parts of America, you know, trying to get a job in a factory or or chase their dreams in the big city. So These two things, sort of the fear of the end of days but also the optimism of the here and now combined and people started coming from all over America and all over the world to practice this new bent on faith.
0: That's remarkable. And this has now sort of like really snowballed. It seems to be sort of increasing all the time. Why has there been such a huge boom more recently? I think
1: the answer really lies in it's giving people what they want in the here and now. So that highly experiential... Ideas of bettering your lot in life and also hopefully the ever after. But it's also very decentralized. It looks and sounds like the local culture. So in Brazil, your traditional Catholic bishop was probably educated in Spain or Portugal. They're probably a white man. They're, you know, dropped in with that very middle class education onto the edge of the the Amazon rainforest or into your favela in Rio de Janeiro. They're sort of bringing down a certain idea of faith, whereas your typical Pentecostal preacher grew up in the favela with you. He's mixed race like you. He knows the streets like you. He grew up very poor. He knows that your mother's sick and goes around to see her while you're at work. He puts on church services at five in the morning and at midnight because he knows that people are working all day in the factories or as domestic servants and they can't just go to a church service at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. The guy who almost acts like a mentor – he encourages you to follow your dreams. He says, you know, why don't you quit that awful job at the factory and and start that little street vendor business you've been talking about for so long and, and then he'll encourage the congregation to go and start shopping there. And that's a big part of the prosperity gospel and why it's so popular and why we often see it working because they start forming solidarity networks that you're not getting from anywhere else uh-huh. outside the church. You're certainly not getting it from the state. And obviously, when people start going and seeing these improvements in their life, other people start coming along with them. And that sense of material improvement is so powerful and understandably so.
0: And the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when you look at sort of traditional Christianity, for example, and, you know, missionaries going out and trying to convert people in different countries, it was a much slower process, I suppose. And here, we, you know, we've got Pentecostalism in Brazil, as you said, sub-Saharan Africa, South Korea. How has it been so easy for it to sort of take a hold in each of these countries? It's that decentralised
1: nature. So people can really make it suit the local conditions. They can make it look and sound like the local culture. So in places in sub-Saharan Africa, it's very syncretic with a lot of traditional local beliefs. Same as in Korea. There'll be quite different ways of practising Pentecostalism and that's just fine because there is no overarching authority. It's the guy that you like and it's feeling god within you. So in South Africa and many parts of sub-Saharan Africa healing is is a really big aspect and and very traditional healing or almost shamanistic. In Korea for example it's very much the faith of the aspirational class of people, aspirational middle class, very highly educated people who want to be seen as quite American. That, that many of the churches there will do their services in English, and people will learn the Bible in English to to sort of show how Americanized they are. So it really tends to craft itself onto the aspirations of the local people in apartheid South Africa. It was churches were about the only place where sometimes different native African groups could congregate together, and It's still very much a worship and ecstatic joy that you feel of being able to practice their traditional culture in church on Sunday. And sometimes these services will go in South Africa, certainly, for
0: 12 hours. The Pentecostal Church also has a celebrity following, Denzel Washington, Tyson Fury, Justin Bieber, and a host of Premier League footballers, including Raheem Sterling, Marcus Rashford, and Bukayo Saka.
1: Well, there certainly are preachers that caught that celebrity following, shall we say. Pentecostalism is very biblically fundamentalist, but it's very good at doing corporate and modern consumer culture. And they understand that they're operating in a marketplace of ideas. And if someone doesn't like the way you're preaching, they can go to another church and it's not just a matter of necessarily getting up and walking down the street, it's a matter of turning on YouTube and finding a preacher you like. So they're very aware of this competitive nature and, Let's say it's not bad for business to have Justin
0: Bieber showing up on your Instagram. It also seems to attach itself to certain politicians. You know, we saw it in America. You've described it as the theological wing of nationalist movements led by, you know, people like Bolsonaro in Brazil, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and Donald Trump.
1: And we moved the capital
0: of Israel to Jerusalem. That's for the evangelicals. You know, it's amazing with that. The
1: evangelicals are more excited about that than Jewish people. It's really, right? It's incredible.
0: I mean, just talk us through, why is it that this form of of religion seems to fit so well with sort of slightly authoritarian nationalism?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting thing. So, for example, with Trump, he obviously had a strong evangelical backing, but the first people he had were people like Paula white Kane, his spiritual advisor, a very well-known Pentecostal preacher.
0: Let it be burned by the fire of God right now in the name of Jesus. Let every. Worship the Lord.
1: And her husband used to be in the band Journey. So, again, that musical popular culture connection. But it was the Pentecostals that, that were really his first and, and most unswerving supporters. And that's significant because. There's a real sense in global Pentecostalism that really lines up with that sort of new nationalist international and that's feeling besieged by the secular liberal world around them. For example, Nigeria, one of Donald Trump's countries that he called a shithole country, they're the third highest supporting country of Trump in the world. They see him like many Americans do and many Pentecostals around the world do as someone who is unconstrained by their values but is fighting for them Someone who's ready to roll their sleeves up and get dirty on their behalf. They might want their Pentecostal preacher perhaps to live by the values that he's preaching. But the leader of the free world, maybe it's
0: better if he's unconstrained by them. Coming up, Elle takes Bush hallucinogens and is told to kill two chickens, all in the name of Pentecostalism. Hello, I'm Jane Mulkerens, Associate Editor of The Times Magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. As Pentecostalism has swept the world, it's moulded itself on local traditions wherever it goes, which means the church operates very differently in different countries, as Elle found when she spent some time following the movement in South Africa. I was in
1: inner city Johannesburg, which I think just might be the faith healing capital of the world. And I met with a local prophet who is very well known for the signs that he has all around the city saying that you can see your enemy in the mirror some of the flashier better known preachers i tried to to get to do you know a faith healing ceremony on me and they're very media savvy and i don't think that they would get near someone like me but the prophet was happy to see me and i sort of understood after a little while that i was very much the typical person that comes to him i was a young woman normally it's uh, women come to him with problems of fertility or of the heart i'd just been through a a bad breakup of a long term relationship And I think that he really saw something in me and I began to understand the power of that when, especially coming out of the pandemic, you know, when you can just sit in a room with someone again, it's that power of the human touch and it's someone that can almost look into your soul and and understand that something isn't quite right. So he agreed to try and heal the bad spirits out of me in his traditional way that, you know, at times was speaking in tongues. Was
0: that disconcerting?
1: No. I mean, I've I've been around a lot of people speaking in tongues, so I'm fine with that. You know, it's often a very intense spiritual moment, but there was also some practices he brought in which were a bit more disconcerting. So there were two very large chickens that I was supposed to kill with my hands to, to help get the bad spirits out of me, but I wasn't quite able to bring myself to do it. But he conducted a... Ceremony on me, which involved some bush hallucinogens and trying to get the evil spirits out of me with the chickens, and yeah, I came to understand that that is, you know, a very traditional ceremony. and And I think what's important is that there is actually some evidence that these kind of forms of faith healing work. Some American researchers did go to a church in neighboring Mozambique in 2011, and they found some fairly compelling evidence that when the whole village came and and tried to pray for some people that were hard of hearing, that some of them did actually get some of their hearing back. I mean, look, the studies aren't necessarily the most rigorous. There's no control group and things like that. But something really fascinating is that they found when they did this study back in 2011, was they then tried to replicate it over Zoom or Skype, it would have been back then, and they found it had absolutely no effect. And I just found something incredibly powerful about that effect of The human touch, and and in places like this, in inner city Johannesburg, in rural Mozambique, miracles are often the only game in town, and sometimes I do believe that they can come true. I did go all the way to the end. I just wasn't very successful, but but I also did have a deep moment of realization when I was quite high, I suppose you'd say, which you know often people do in various hallucinogenic medications. You know, realizing that that maybe. There is something to the power of the human touch and that there maybe are some things in the world that that we can't explain
0: and and that I'm quite comfortable with that. And this sort of practice, you know, with the chickens and the hallucinogens, is this now quite common in South Africa, in Pentecostal churches?
1: I can't speak to the chickens, but certainly a traditional form of faith healing certainly is. Everyone has their own way of doing things, their own local customs and, and things like that. But certainly, I mean, South Africa is very close to being a failed state. It's very interesting that it's really popular there among young people and there's a lot of sort of millennial showman preachers. They're the first generation really after 1994. They were promised the lot after apartheid. They were promised that everything was going to get better. The country is horribly corrupt. Poverty is is endemic. Youth unemployment is about 75%. So a lot of these preachers, are, especially some of the big flashy guys, they're almost forming their own states within states, tithing becomes like giving taxes. It's not the best care in Mm -hmm. town, but they'll, you know, give you faith healing via miracle, but they'll also probably have a small medical clinic on site that you can access. If you go to the church, they'll offer things like, you know, what is effectively childcare, but all sorts of youth groups and things like that. So, you know, especially if you're a single mom and you know, your kids while you're at work, your choice is, is them running around with the 75% of kids who are unemployed or going to a church that offers the music practice, football practice. That's a really powerful thing. And, and again, we're seeing time and time again, people that do tend to get involved with churches do tend to see an uptick in their life because of these sort of small incremental material things that the churches are offering.
0: And Elle, for you, I mean, having gone around the world and seen so many different sides of Pentecostalism, was this a difficult story to report on?
1: In some ways, yes. Just societies as logistically, sort of having started this just before the pandemic, there were, you know, a lot of issues in that regard. There was certainly a fair degree of hostility from a lot of the leaders of churches that I was interviewing. They're very media savvy and not wild about the fake news media, about a person that's, you know, came in with an open mind, but isn't of faith themselves. But then again, ordinary people in churches tended to be very open to me. They, you know, want to show that they're good people. And, you you know, we've talked about a lot of bad stuff, but a lot of these churches, it's young women joining to make their family life and community life better. Did you find it quite compelling? I certainly did. It's felt from the beginning like it's the people's faith. It's always been the faith of migrants, of the working class. From its earliest beginnings, it has let people come in side by side in segregated America, let blacks and whites sit side by side, let females preach. So it's always allowed for the prevailing culture of the day and for people to celebrate the little things perhaps that they have in life, such as their faith, the things that they mightn't have a lot, but they can all come together, celebrate their faith, often celebrate their culture. And it really feels like it's very much still the faith for for all the you know preachers with private jets and rolexes and things like that it's still very much a faith of the marginalized in britain i spent time with traveler people and i sort of came to understand that for them it's a way of being acceptable in modern britain it's a way of that gypsies can finally be accepted and that's very heartbreaking but
0: also very understandable and when you were there i mean did you feel like they were trying to convert you
1: yeah, I, I certainly had a lot of people after my soul. The Gypsy Boys down in Kent still WhatsApp me occasionally and, and ask <laughs> ask if I've been <laughs> saved. But, but they're really great pastors and they, they understand what people want in the here and now and they just contact me to see how I'm doing and say, you know, if you ever want to talk about anything, we're here. And that is, you know, important and powerful and, and that's what Pentecostals are just really great at doing.
0: And there are clearly sort of some darker edges to it. You've mentioned a few. Should we be alarmed by its rapid spread at all? I mean, how should we understand? This is clearly sort of becoming one of the biggest religions very, very quickly. How will it change society? It's estimated that one in 10 people in the
1: world will be Pentecostal by 2050. So there'll be about a billion Pentecostals. I think it's just important that people understand this. So People are always so surprised when I sort of mention the figures around it, around 600 million people, 35,000 people a day converting. Those kind of numbers are quite difficult to comprehend. I don't think the rise is so much a problem. I mean, you know, I still think that people should be able to practice whatever they want, and that's fine. But certainly I think some of the doctrines around the faith are very troubling. But I think it's also important to understand, you know, why people are being attracted to these faith time and time again in states that are failed states or states that are being failed. These are solidarity networks. These are the only places often to get things that states were traditionally meant to give you and no one else is, is offering it outside of the churches.
0: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the writer and journalist L. Hardy. Elle's book, Beyond Belief, is out now. The producer today was Asir Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.